Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. The American Revolution was a political movement and war between Great Britain and its 13 American colonies. It began with the passage of the Stamp Act in 1765 and ended with the ratification of the United States Bill of Rights in 1791. The military piece of the revolution, the American War for Independence, began in 1775 with the Battles of Lexington and Concord and ended when the British surrendered at the Battle of Yorktown in 1781. Opposition to the British crown began years before battles broke out, and it took many forms. Colonists boycotted British goods. They refused to pay taxes. They rioted. The Taxation Acts, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, and the Intolerable Acts were main drivers of this insurrection. And a Scotsman named James Aitken sympathized with the rebellion by setting British dockyards on fire. If the Royal Navy didn't have any ships, then England couldn't go to war with the colonies, right? Let's talk about who James was and how he wanted to be a hero. Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. James Aitken was born in Edinburgh, Scotland on September 28, 1752. He was the eighth of 12 children born to George and Magdalene Aitken. George was a smith. Blacksmith or whitesmith, we're not sure, but his story tells us he did work with metals and probably soft types of metals, things along the lines of tin. He died young in the late 1750s when James was still just a boy. Magdalene was unable to support her family, and James was admitted to a charity school set up by Scottish goldsmith and philanthropist George Harriet. Harriet had no heirs when he died, and he left the bulk of his estate to establish what was first known as George Harriet's Hospital when it opened in 1659. A charitable school was commonly known as a hospital at the time, and the one George established was built for, quote, fatherless bairns. That's fatherless children, living in Edinburgh. 
The school was known for its top-notch education, and it was considered a relatively strict but impressive institution. The days combined what's been described as a demanding study schedule with religious devotions. Some reports suggest students worked from 7 a.m. until 8 p.m., with some time provided for what was called innocent diversions, such as spending time with friends. While at Harriet, James was provided an apprenticeship opportunity in a trade. His trade was house painting. Unfortunately, though, there was not much work in the city for those in that trade at that time. The market was saturated and the demand was shrinking. To make a living, he left Edinburgh. In his memoir, which historians consider factual yet likely embellished, James stated that after that bad luck, he tried to join the army as a commissioned officer. That plan, for whatever reason, did not work out. He instead moved to London, where he collected so much debt he left the city to escape it. This also appears to be the time in James's life when he turns to crime. His first known crime was highway robbery, and he was, at least initially, successful robbing coaches and carriages. It did not take long, though, before wanted posters describing him started circulating. That's a little more attention than a highway robber wants. Looking to get out of town, James considered getting out of the country, actually. He decided to emigrate to America, to the colonies, which were gaining momentum toward their war against British rule. Too poor to pay his own way, he signed himself into an indenture for £24 to be paid in cash or service. That indenture was sold to a man in Virginia, but James never had any intention of working it off. Soon after arriving in the colonies, he was on the move, first north through Maryland and eventually to New York via Philadelphia. In his memoir, James claimed he headed toward Boston when he heard about the riots and the Boston Tea Party. Boston was a hotbed of revolutionary activity. The Boston Massacre, for instance, occurred in 1770. The Boston Tea Party, which James claimed to have been present for, happened in 1773. Though many now-famous events were unfolding while James was in America, historians believe James's plan to go to Boston may have been an exaggerated story. We can't actually be sure if he ever made it to Massachusetts. The historical record leaves us without any detail about his activities while in the colonies. James later claimed to have traveled extensively along the Atlantic coast and stated in his memoir that during these travels, he encountered revolutionary rhetoric, but he also claimed to have been mistaken for a patriot and harassed by British troops. When he found out that Britain was sending more military power to quell the colonists, according to his own account, his first response was not to take up arms, but to return to England. He had a growing sympathy for the Patriot cause, and he was likely, at this time, already concocting an alarming plan to help their effort. After what was probably about two years abroad, in May of 1775, James arrived in Liverpool, and he was flat broke. He got some money quickly by signing up with an army recruiter, but he deserted the 32nd Army Regiment after getting his signing bonus. He next traveled to Birmingham, where he did some legit painting work, but he later admitted he found the, quote, honest work to be boring. So he robbed, burgled, and ran the army recruitment scam again. James was also known as James Hill, John Hill, James Hind, as well as James Boswell and John Boswell. 
He used a lot of aliases in his work as a petty thief. After his painting apprenticeship, James was also known as John the Painter. With cash in his pockets, he left for London. He spent four months thieving around the city, and it's here where he, in his own words, quote, got into connection with some women of the town. Also fearing authorities were on to his criminal acts, James fled London for Cambridge. He robbed his way through several other counties before he joined up with an army regiment in Colchester. This time, he stayed hidden in the ranks for a few months, strategically concealing himself from anyone looking to arrest him for his collection of petty crimes. We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and when we return, we'll talk about the details of James's plan to commit arson in British naval dockyards in support of the American Revolutionary War. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. And I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older (laughs) in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their Brilliant Eye Brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash that's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash Criminalia for 10% off your first order. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. 
Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome back to Criminalia. James has never been known for his life of petty crime. He's actually nearly lost to history, except for this one thing. As the military conflict of the American Revolution was heating up, in support of the Patriots, James set fire to the Royal Navy dockyards of Portsmouth and Bristol. Patriots, who were also known as Whigs, were colonists who rejected British rule. Famous names here would include George Washington and John Adams. Their rebellion stemmed from several things and was based in, at a very high level, the rejection of the ideas of a monarchy and aristocracy. Loyalists, also known as Tories, on the other hand, were colonists who remained loyal to the English king, King George III, and they made up approximately 15% of the population across all 13 colonies, although Some historians put that number a bit higher. James believed that if he destroyed strategic British ports, he would hamstring the Royal Navy. And if the Royal Navy was incapacitated, then he believed General George Washington's Continental Army could and would win the war. Jessica Warner, author of John the Painter, the First Modern Terrorist, writes that James also tried to enlist prominent Americans, including Benjamin Franklin, to support his plan. He claimed to be an agent of what he called the American Congress, and he wanted a hero's welcome in America. Exactly when James hatched his plan to commit acts of sabotage in royal dockyards in support of the War of American Independence is not clear. Most reports suggest he sought and had a meeting in Paris with Silas Dean, an American politician, diplomat, and supporter of American independence. He was a prominent member of the Continental Congress in the early days of the American Revolution and was in Paris to secure a military and political alliance with France. Upon meeting Dean, James laid out his elaborate plan. He explained that his strategy included a campaign of arson against British dockyards up and down the coast, plus additional attacks of arson elsewhere as necessary to help create confusion. James thought this meeting went great. And he returned from their engagement with a few pounds in cash, a passport in the name of the King of France, a contact in London, and arson on his personal agenda. Dean's recollection of their meetings suggests that while he thought James had little chance of success and told him so, he was struck by the plot. He would later defend himself saying, quote, regard me equally criminal with the actor. 
Author Jessica Warner writes, she believes James's arson plans likely originated from his reading of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, a 47-page pamphlet written in 1775 famously advocating for American independence from Britain. This would have been fresh at the time James left the colonies. The question of motive remains unanswered, although it sounds like more than a few things likely factored into his decisions. Some historians have suggested that James's motivation wasn't to win a war, but rather to escape what he saw as his inconsequential life. A victory against the Royal Navy on behalf of the Americans, he believed, would give him recognition, and maybe even a hefty reward or a commission in the Continental Army. He would be important. A hero. We mentioned that Dean gave James a contact in London. And we don't know for certain who it was, but it may have been American physician Edward Bancroft, who, unknown to Dean, was not just an American spy, but a double agent. This is speculated, but the things line up to suggest that this really is the pretty likely candidate. At Dean's urging, it's believed that James did meet with Bancroft in London and did disclose at least some of his plans. Bancroft, however, was not struck by the plot. He was horrified. Fearing that Bancroft might turn him in for treachery, James left the city. James was bolstered, though, by the notion that he had diplomatic backing of not just Silas Dean, but also the Continental Congress that Dean represented. His first act of terror, as author Jessica Warner describes it, on behalf of American patriots, was to burn royal dockyards, beginning with the Portsmouth Dockyard. He believed one smartly planned act of arson there would destroy harbored ships as well as the dockyards and hemp walks that were used to build and refit the fleet. James used his background as a painter while preparing for this crime, specifically the painter's technique of grinding pigments into fine powders. He used that technique to produce readily ignited charcoal powder. To start the fires with time to escape before personal injury, he had put together a device that looked like a candle in a tin box. Because that's what it was. The wick of this candle served as a makeshift timed fuse, and he filled the base of the box with another painter's tool, highly flammable turpentine. The idea was that when the wick burned down to the level of the liquid, it would cause an explosion. After James's landlady caught him testing his homemade fuses, he was evicted from his lodgings. James moved into a different boarding house on the edge of town, and then he got right back to work, perhaps a bit more discreetly this time. As told to us in James's confession, and similarly in his memoir, it was on December 5th, 1776, when he arrived in Portsmouth and began his reconnaissance. He'd take legitimate jobs painting the buildings at the dockyards that he was casing as to not look suspicious. He described the night of December 6th when he sneaked into the dockyard and set up one of his devices in a warehouse. It was the Hemp House, a large structure more than a thousand feet long. What he'd planned to use as tinder turned out to be damp, and he'd spent so much time trying to ignite the fire that he found himself locked inside the building late that night. His rescuer, hearing James pounding on the door for help, believed his bluff of innocently wanting to see what was inside. The night was a failure, and James returned to his lodging at Mrs. Boxel's boarding house. The next day, December 7th, James returned to the dockyard. 
This time, he went instead to the rope house, where he had also hidden other combustibles. At about four o'clock in the afternoon, a fire broke out, and it consumed the entire warehouse. That fire burned for six hours, and as a safety precaution, a ship carrying gunpowder in the port was put out to sea. Initially, no one, including Admiralty investigators, was sure if this fire was accidental or if it was intentional. Royal dockyards at this time were full of wooden ships and wooden buildings and gunpowder, so accidents could and often did happen. We are going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. When we're back, we will talk about James's arrest, his alleged confession, and his day at the gallows. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about how James was probably caught and the day of his execution. On those two nights in December, James fled the Portsmouth dockyard in such a hurry that he left behind evidence that would eventually be his downfall. A month later, on January 5th, three men working in the hemp house discovered suspicious items, including a box containing combustible materials and a candle. Investigation led authorities to one of James's aliases, James Hill, who, it was reported, had been seen walking around the dockyard. Later, witnesses reconstructing the scene described seeing him in a state of agitation. The full extent of James's arson plan included destroying five dockyards, but as we'll see, he didn't make it beyond two. The Bristol dockyard followed Portsmouth, and some reports suggest James did successfully start a fire on a merchantman trading ship but that it took very little damage. He also followed through on his plan to start small fires around the city in an effort to make it seem like several people were involved in this sabotage. Not much damage came of that either. Panic increased when James's original failed incendiary was discovered in the hemp warehouse in Portsmouth. And the fires popping up in Bristol also made people anxious they realized that there was a saboteur among them, an arsonist. The Admiralty posted a 1,000-pound reward for the arsonist's capture. Warnings were raised at ports throughout Britain, and in Portsmouth, a patrol was set around the docks and through the town every night from 5 p.m. until 7 a.m. Bristol, too, was on high alert, and guards were posted at every port. The Bow Street Runners, considered London's first professional police force, were called in. 
Papers printed sensational tabloid news stories about arson at the dockyards. Wrote Bristol's member of parliament, the political philosopher Edmund Burke, quote, I have not the least doubt that the late fires have been the effects of premeditated malice. The king's daily briefings from his ministers included all sorts of information, like uprisings regarding the colonies and James's arson attacks in the royal dockyards. The Crown offered a reward for information leading to the offender's capture, and we've seen the amount is pretty consistently reported to have been around 2,000 pounds. Plus, a treason act aimed at the American colonies and rushed through Parliament in February of 1777 was used to authorize legal detention of any suspects without habeas corpus protection at His Majesty's will. Habeas corpus in 18th century England gave legal protection from arbitrary detention and unlawful imprisonment, just as it functions in Article 1, Section 9 of the United States Constitution. It's not used to determine a person's guilt or innocence, it's protection against illegal imprisonment. With the public frightened that fire setters were roaming their cities, authorities were eager to catch and convict James to settle the population. There are two different versions of how James was caught. The first goes like this. A jailer in the town of Odium noticed a man loitering, a man who fit the description of the unknown Scotsman who was assumed responsible for the recent blazes. James in this story was apprehended, not in Bristol where he was lodging, but in Odium on the street where he was recognized. The second version contains a little more detail and goes like this. James, short on funds, attempted another theft. He may or may not have been trying to pay for travel to Paris. That's unclear. His target was a businessman named Lowe, and Lowe was a man who'd been keeping up with the news. He knew about the dockyard fires and was familiar with the description of the suspect. It'd been published in Fielding's Hue and Cry, an English newspaper that listed details of crimes committed around England with descriptions of the offenders. After Lowe's wife mentioned seeing someone who looked as though he was casing their shop, red flags went up for Lowe. With the aid of the Odium Town jailer, a man named Dalby, the men apprehended James. He was taken into custody by a king's messenger, that's a courier of diplomatic documents with powers to enforce the law. In both versions, the person or persons who caught James got cheated in the deal. No one paid out reward money, claiming the prosecution's case relied on charges related to the crimes committed before any rewards were posted. So, I guess, thanks anyway? Once he was jailed, James admitted to burglary. But other than his pleading guilty to burglary, which wasn't the plea that officials were after, authorities were unsuccessful at extracting any information from or evidence against James while he was jailed in Odium. So they transferred him to the new prison in Clerkenwell, where the government, thanks to the American painter and expatriate John Baldwin, got the confession they wanted about the dockyards. Authorities hoped that Baldwin and James knew each other just because James had spent time in America and that maybe there were still crimes to be told. They put the two men in a room together, and as it turns out, they did not know each other. They used Baldwin to manipulate James, though, and it did not take long before James started chatting. And things went so well that he asked the artist to visit him again in prison, 
and they started to see each other pretty regularly. James was completely unaware that his new friend was actually there on behalf of the Crown to tease out a confession, and eventually, James started to confide in him. He told him about his meeting with Silas Dean, his arson plot, and how he had carried out part of the mission he thought he was entrusted with before he was arrested. His confession to Baldwin strengthened the case against him as he exposed pretty much the entire plot. I think we can all agree that this confession is dubious in nature, but it was good enough for the courts to try him. According to Warner, James wasn't the, quote, madman they all called him. He was a lonely man. She writes, quote, he asked complete strangers to drink with him because he was lonely, and loneliness overrode his reason. His invitations always came too quickly, and his conversation and his manner always just a little off. In the days leading up to the trial, it's reported that James began to reconcile to his punishment and agreed to dictate his story-slash-confession to a publisher who promised he'd get James moved to better prison conditions. James's memoir included this confession, which historians have referred to as his, quote, unlikely last words. So this is the confession, quote, Good people, I am now going to suffer for a crime, the heinousness of which deserves a more severe punishment than what is going to be inflicted. My life has been long forfeited by the innumerable felonies I have formerly committed, but I hope God, in his great mercy, will forgive me. And I hope the public, whom I have much injured, will carry their resentment no further, but forgive me as I forgive all the world, and pray for me that I may have forgiveness above. I have made a faithful confession of every transaction of my life, from my infancy to the present time particularly the malicious intention I had of destroying all the dockyards in this kingdom. I die with no enmity in my heart to his majesty and government, but wish the ministry success in all their undertakings, and I hope my untimely end will be warning to all persons not to commit the like atrocious offense. His trial, held at Winchester, was not for burglary or for treasonous acts against the crown. He was tried only for the crime of arson at the rope house in His Majesty's dockyard in Portsmouth. He was found guilty after just one day in court, and, as set under the Dockyards Protection Act of 1772, his offense carried the death penalty. The Dockyards Protection Act was passed by Parliament to protect royal dockyards and ships from arson attacks, and there was only one legal case that actually ever used this act. And that's James. On March 7, 1777, he was convicted for arson and sentenced to death by hanging. The night after his conviction, James confessed his guilt of the fire at Portsmouth, as well as small fires that he had ignited around Bristol. He confessed that he also tried to ignite barrels of oil, as well as pitch and tar, on the wharf hoping that the fire would float on the water and burn the ships anchored there. On March 10th, his sentence was carried out. Authorities decided James should be executed in full view of the damage he'd done. Dockyard riggers and rope makers erected the 64-foot, some say 67-foot, gallows at the dockyard gate. Whether 64 or 67 feet, it was one of the tallest gallows in history. 
And that's because it was specially made from the mizzenmast taken from the HMS Arethusa. The day of his death, reported as looking, quote, disheveled, James was paraded around the wharf in a wagon, stopping at the commissioner's house to confess his crime. As many as 20,000 people gathered to watch his execution, including most of the residents of Portsmouth, as well as many from surrounding towns. His acts of arson had truly struck terror into their lives. Wrote the Newgate Calendar, a publication that knew of him by his alias John Hill, quote, so dangerous an individual to the kingdom as this man perhaps never existed, and whose confession and repentance can hardly soften the abhorrence felt on the contemplation of the extent of his crimes. The Newgate calendar was a record of crimes, testimonies, and executions, a record that's very detailed, but a detailed mix of fact and the sensational stories that people like to read in the papers. Just before one o'clock, James, who it's easy to forget was just in his early 20s at this time, met his death. And it's reported his body was terribly treated. His corpse was taken to Pitch House Jetty in Portsmouth, where it was coated with coal tar pitch and placed in a human-shaped iron cage. Taken then to Fort Blockhouse, authorities suspended the cage from gallows there. This was known as gibbeting. He'd be seen by all who entered the Portsmouth Harbor. For years. Gibbeting was pretty common at that time. The remains of convicted criminals were often placed in this type of device to intentionally allow the body to hang after execution. Later, it's been suggested that James's body was, perhaps secretly, buried by royal engineers when they were conducting renovations in that area. According to a report in the Maryland Journey, dated Tuesday, April 8, 1777, so about a month after James's execution, quote, Captain Robert Cochran in the armed brigantine Notre Dame lately arrived at Charleston, South Carolina, with a valuable cargo from France. Accounts were received in France before Captain Cochran's departure of the arsenal and dockyard at Portsmouth having been burnt in the beginning of December. The loss is computed at two million sterling, but at the present critical situation of Great Britain, being in all appearance on the eve of a French and Spanish war, and the supplies of naval stores from America being discontinued, it will be hard to determine what the loss may be estimated. James's story, although he is unnamed in it, made it across the Atlantic to the colonists that he had committed himself to helping. What a story of James's life. He's one that's so fascinating to me because he could have been on various seasons of ours. Very much. His life of petty crime offers many opportunities where he could have been slotted, but... And impersonators. He has many right? different aliases, yes. Yeah, he's got a lot of options. Listen, I'm soft-hearted, and the whole thing I keep thinking of with him is that this is some poor dude who doesn't feel like he has a connection to anybody who thinks he's going to be helpful, but chooses the worst possible path for that help. So I am calling his drink, I'm helping, in the way that a kid would almost be like, but I'm helping. I'm helping. However, it's delicious, so that's good. And one of the things that I was thinking about with this was time and place. There's a really wonderful book 
that I love and it's very fun read called Colonial Spirits, which is written by, I don't know if he pronounces his last name Grass or Grassy, but it's Stephen Grass, G-R-A-S-S-E, where it talks about a lot of the kinds of drinks that were popular in the colonies. And I, of course, kept coming back to rum punches. Rum punch, normally you make in big batches. Mm -hmm. And James didn't get to make his big batch of fires, thankfully. No, nor did he get to join a big batch of troops that he could have shared that No, he didn't get to big batch anything. He wanted a big life, but he had a little one. So this is a drink that is inspired by rum punches, but you could just make one for yourself or a friend. So the I'm helping is half an ounce of dark rum, an ounce and a half of cognac, a half ounce of lemon juice, and then three quarters of an ounce of syrup, which can be a simple syrup. Or I did a vanilla syrup because mm-hmm. I really like the idea of a a very a sweeter thing like a rum punch would have. Like rum punches when you would make them in big batches would have like pounds and pounds of sugar in them, which obviously we were not gonna do. With that, you will put it all into your tin, your shaking tin with ice. You're gonna shake it a bunch. You are going to do what we call a dirty dump on this, which is when you don't strain it because we're not doing the water dilution that you would do with a punch. So we're letting the ice do a little dilution. And that also kind of helps all of those flavors mix together and talk to each other and become one. So you'll do your dirty dump and then you're going to top it with a light ginger beer, like three ounces or so. It's ridiculous how yummy this turned out. I love when ginger beer shows up. So like, (laughs) I will do ginger beer in anything. (laughs) You can't break it. It's so good. This does sound like a good drink. It's so delicious. It's ridiculous. So this is one too, though, that I mean, it's not like crazy heavy in terms of ABV, but it's real easy to drink. So I would be careful because you can make yourself a few and then be like, what happened? I have had too many drinks. To make the mocktail, which you can have as many as you want of and not worry about that, you're just going to do some really easy substitutions. So instead of that half ounce of dark rum, you're going to use a spiced chai tea that's heavily steeped. And then instead of the ounce and a half of cognac, you're going to do apricot nectar. And then you'll make it the same. If that makes it too sweet, you can add a little more water to it to just back it off. If you are one of those people that doesn't like a super sweet drink, I would mix the apricot nectar one-to-one with a little bit of water before you even add it. It just simplifies the whole process. But that also is a very delicious... I did... I added a tiny bit of water, but not very much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Any of these fruit nectars that come up, I am such a fan. And that one's easy too, because if the mocktail... The other thing you can do to the mocktail, if it's a little sweet, is just add a little more ginger beer it's going to cut some of that sweetness anyway. And then that just dilutes it even more. And it's great. Listen, it's very hot right now where I am. Where I am too. Much of North America is very sweltering at the moment. So it's nice to have a very cold, sippable beverage that has a little bite, a little fire to it in the ginger part. But that's also kind and feels a little like a hug. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you feel like you have all of the attention, hugs, etc. you need, that you do not go down a path like James where you do something very foolish and dangerous and damaging to yourself or others in the interest of getting attention. 
we will be right back here next week. We can hang out with you again with more talks of arson and drinks. It'll be fun. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then, fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.